0: At Shibuya train station in Tokyo, there is a statue of a dog. And that dog's name was Hachiko. Hachiko's master was a professor at the local university in the 1920s. And every day, Hachiko would wander down to Shibuya station to meet his master and walk home with him. One day, though, his master didn't arrive. He died at work from a cerebral hemorrhage. But Hachiko was undeterred. Every day for the next 10 years, he would walk down to Shibuya Station, hoping for the return of his master. Touched by this display of loyalty, Hachiko became a bit of a celebrity. Before he died in 1935 at the age of 11, a bronze statue was commissioned in his memory. It still stands there today. We don't have a hachiko in New Zealand. But you know what we do have? A really friendly cat. For years, Mittens strutted the footpaths of Wellington, building a following online by going wherever he pleased. From pubs to student flats, even a strip club. Mittens the cat, who now lives in Auckland, was once nominated
1: for New Zealander of the Year. Now Mittens is a Turkish Angora cat who wanders Wellington, a Facebook page dedicated to his ventures, has over 50,000 followers. He's often caught, apparently, napping in workplaces and shop windows, homes that are not his own. When he's not napping, he's patrolling the city, letting the lucky ones who come across him giving a pat.
0: He has a key to the city of Wellington. His aquiline features, which some less generous folk might describe as gaunt or haunting, adorn novelty mugs and notebooks and tote bags and, naturally, mittens. He's the subject of a chart-topping song, a children's book. He was the victim of an elaborate and poorly conceived abduction plan. And soon, he may be further immortalised in bronze.
1: Mittens lives in Cuba Mall, so he's a downtown cat.
0: That is Graham Bloxham. He runs the Wellington Live website and Facebook page, and he's the brains behind an idea to commission a statue of Mittens in the capital.
1: He's just so confident. He, he and he became a bit of a hero. Um, he would go into people's apartments and get into the lift, and, and he, he was a, but never into any mischief. And then over the, over the, he'd go into cafes and he, he was everywhere. He was, and, and people got used to him and would take photos. And he'd get lost and he'd be found. He was found in Karori one day. So he just. <laughs> He's just a bit of a mischief, and everyone's fallen in love with. Him. Wellington put some bronze statues around the city on Saturday or last week, magpies and birds and things like that—a bit of a, a bit of an art walk. And I thought, well, Mittens needs one. We've been involved with Mittens a bit, so um, I, I said if the post got seven thousand likes, I, d- I really didn't think it would. Um, I would organise, not pay for, organise a statue. Well, it hit hit 9,000 in about two hours, and people were joking, and and, and a lot of people were saying, that's madness, we're in a cost-of-living crisis, bloody stupid statue, you know, Mm -hmm. and other people were defending Mittens, and and that's sort of how it came about. Yeah, I'm on the hook.
0: But what's Mittens famous for? Being friendly, really. Sneaking into people's homes and napping on their couches. In a certain sense, Mittens is little more than a cute home invader taking what he wants from the good people of Wellington in the manner of a ruthless feudal lord. The thing is, Aotearoa's has had more than its fair share of famous animals with similar, if not better, claims to a statue than mittens. And so on today's podcast, I'm Emil Donovan, by the way, and you're listening to The Detail, we're going to learn a bit about them.
1: The story of Inky the Octopus's daring escape from the Napier Aquarium has hit the headlines around the world, from the likes of The Guardian and The New York Times to India's Bengali newspaper... Annie Hilton
0: is Talk ZB's Hawke's Bay correspondent who covered Inky the Octopus's daring escape in 2016. Who was Inky and what did Inky do?
2: OK, so was an octopus at the National Aquarium of New Zealand in Napier, and that aquarium is right on the, sh- on the, on the beachfront yeah. in Napier, so obviously really um, good access to the seawater. And Inky was donated to the aquarium, he was caught in a crayfish pot out in the bay, and the fisherman who found him um, donated him to the aquarium, and he survived, he was a bit scarred up, but he'd been in resident there for quite some time, and, mm-hmm. um, and then lo and behold the staff arrived one morning, and his tank was empty. And, and all, I think they just had to put two and two together, saw the, the water on the floor that had led from his tank to the seawater pipe, and then have had to, I guess, just assume that he made a really slippery escape.
0: <laughs> Annika Smith is a political reporter with RNZ. She covered Inky's absconding as a cub reporter for Hawke's Bay Today.
2: The story kind of went global, like yeah. to the point where there were groups of schoolchildren in, like, America that were, <laughs> um, I think, you know, classrooms of cute kids that had been asked to write stories about what they think he was up to now. So I think the story of itself, this daring escape by an octopus, it, it went global, and the story that I was assigned, I, I think I interviewed a couple of the aquarium keepers, is that the, yeah. the right name of the... Um, and I, I sort of came came in afterwards and was just asking, you know, wh- why he escaped. And it's interesting rereading my article because I think I pushed one of the um, employees on this on the escapee story, wondering if like maybe Inky had actually just died. So I did ask, you know, is Inky actually okay? Did he really slip across the floor? And there was the story was that they got to work and that Inky wasn't there, and the most likely thing that had happened is that he slipped out of the tank, that it was left slightly ajar, he scuttled across the floor and down a drain pipe and into the, into the ocean, it's, and away he went. And he was s- driven for love. He y- was driven for love, apparently, to breed.
0: Alison Balance, welcome back to The Detail. Great to have you here. Lovely to be here. We're going to be talking about Sirocco. So let's start with who Sirocco is and why Sirocco is famous.
3: Well, Sirocco is a world-famous kākāpō. So kākāpō, giant flightless green parrots, nocturnal as well, just trying to think of all the adjectives that go with them. Mm -hmm. And Sirocco was famously filmed trying to mate with Mark Cowardine's head while Stephen Fry watches on and laughs.
1: He's getting a bit frisky. Ow! Ow! Do you think it is a. Um, he's actually attempting a sort of mating ritual? He is. Oh, he's lost. You I'm are being shagged.
4: shagged. not ow. Of course, Shark. Look,
1: he's so happy. I'm sorry, but <laughs> ow. one of I'm the funniest it? things <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> you are being shagged by a rare parrot.
3: And, of course, this was all filmed by the BBC, (laughs) and it's gone completely viral.
0: You've known Sirocco for quite some time, Alison.
3: I have. Not in the way that Mark knew him. (laughs) But I first met Sirocco 25 years ago, and he was less than a day old. I was filming for a documentary, and actually, it goes back further than that. I first met him as an egg. Mm. and. (laughs) And I spent a few months filming him, you know, effectively filming his childhood and growing up.
0: The thing that he is most famous for, which you tastefully described to us before, um, it's funny, but there is a reason for his um, unusual libidinousness, isn't there?
3: Well, there is, but you have to feel a little sorry for him mm. because he was a sickly baby. And when I was filming him, he did have to be dramatically rescued by Roz the Ranger in the middle of the night. And then he was hand-reared uh, and brought back from the brink of death by fairy godmother Daryl. But the problem was he had no other Kakapool kids to play with. Mm. The only two other chicks on the island at the time were still with their mums. So poor old Sirocco thinks he's a person. And like all young males, he's keen to have sex. Uh-huh. And he's just a bit confused about who he should have it with. <laughs>
0: I, you're right that it is sad, but it's so funny, Alison. It's so funny, I don't know what to do.
3: Yes, well, they're a bit like that, Kākāpō. They make you laugh and make you cry at the same time.
0: And I mean, like, but, like, seriously, that's actually an issue, isn't it? Because, I mean, there are there are very few Kākāpō in the wild, and Sirocco, as a, you know, ev- eventually healthy young Kākāpō, would have been very valuable re- reproductively, but that's not really the way that it's panned out, is it?
3: No, but he's been very helpful in the sense that although he doesn't want to mate with other kākāpō, he's quite happy to mate with people's heads and other things. And the kākāpō team have been trying for a few years to get artificial insemination working as a way of increasing the genetic diversity of the species and sirocco is a very handy sperm donor and i think there's a very famous helmet which was made for someone to wear so that sirocco could have his way with their head whilst uh, delivering sperm at the same time all for science of course
0: yeah i think i think i'm right in saying that that helmet's at te papa now you
3: are exactly right.
0: I suppose, in a sense, he performed an equally valuable role as a sort of charismatic spokesbird for, for Kākāpō, which that was a title that he was actually officially, officially given, right? He, he was an ambassador.
3: That's completely right. So he's been working very hard to make up for that bad boy reputation he's got. <laughs> so, And he's exactly the official spokesbird for conservation. So he's in the bird equivalent of the diplomatic corps. Yeah. He's... He's an avian ambassador.
0: But in terms of that spokesbird role, over the course of his life, how have kākāpō numbers um, sort of ebbed and and flowed over that sort of time? Has he been a successful spokesbird, would you say?
3: Well, he's been a very successful spokesbird. He's made the kākāpō very popular. It keeps winning bird of the year. In fact, I don't think they're standing this year because he decided they were too popular. And in the time that I've been involved with kākāpō, which is quite a few years now, Their numbers have gone from 51 known birds to, they've just ticked over 252 birds, which is fabulous and a huge testament to the Kākāpō team. Mm.
0: I mean, I suppose this is a bit of a softball question, but would you welcome a, a, a magnificent bronze statue of Sirocco? And if so, whereabouts do you think it would go?
3: Absolutely. And Parliament grounds next to balance the former Prime Minister, who I do have to say has no relationship, but, you know. Why not? He's got a name.
2: Indeed.
1: <laughs> the emperor penguin dubbed Happy Feet, who arrived on the Kapiti coast a week ago, is recovering after a two-hour operation at Wellington Zoo this morning.
0: Dr Lisa Aguilar, welcome to The Detail. Great to have you here.
5: Thank you.
0: Who was Happy Feet, and, and when did we become acquainted with him here in Aotearoa?
5: Oh, yeah, so Happy Feet was um, a juvenile emperor penguin who um, just ended up sort of cruising around and probably got stuck in a current that dr- dragged him a little bit too far north and was found standing on a beach on the Kapiti coast um, just up north of Wellington. Yeah, and that was in 2011, so having to dredge up all these old memories from what's by 11, 12 years ago now that we cared for him.
0: Yeah. So he's an emperor penguin. He's found in New Zealand. Is that unusual? Is he quite some, some way from home there?
5: Yeah, very unusual. Um, it's not unheard of. Um, emperor penguins have, on occasion, sort of um, headed up this far north. And it is a, kind of a normal thing for a juvenile emperor penguin, which is what he was. He was less than a year old. To just, once they fledge and leave Antarctica, they spend quite a few years out at sea just exploring. And he obviously just had a bit of an adventurous spirit and ended up quite far north Um, yeah so it was very unusual but I think if I recall correctly might have been the second or third sighting of an emperor penguin in New Zealand.
0: He wasn't actually in great shape when when, when we first found him was he?
5: No, um, I guess the first few days he was probably okay and sort of just came ashore for a rest after such a long swim and was preening, but he would have very quickly gotten quite hot. Um, These guys obviously living in the Antarctic um, are used to very, very cold temperatures. And one of the things that emperor penguins do in Antarctica when they're feeling a bit warm is they'll actually start eating snow to cool themselves down. Um, And so he had that instinct that I'm hot so I'm going to start eating the stuff I'm standing on, which unfortunately wasn't snow, it was sand, (sighs) and they ended up creating quite a drama with a big sand impaction um, he was full up to the brim like he had sand right up to the top of his esophagus by the time he came came to hospital.
4: Happy Feet the Emperor Penguin has successfully undergone another round of surgery at Wellington Zoo today. More sand and driftwood have been removed from the penguin's stomach with the help of the head of gastroenterology at Wellington Hospital John Wyeth.
0: Uh, now were you actually were you involved with looking after him at, at the time?
5: Yes I actually ended up going to Kapiti coast beach to um, uplift him and bring him down to wellington zoo so at the time i was the um, senior vet at the Nestor konga which is the wellington zoo veterinary hospital
0: so what was yeah. that sort of what was that process like like how how do, how do how do you help an emperor penguin from Antarctica that's washed up in new zealand and gorged itself on sand to try to cool itself down what, what does that process look like
5: yeah that was that was quite um quite something because we had to, um, I guess, make a very cold environment. So luckily, um, when I was on my way back down to the zoo, I felt a bit like paparazzi were following me in their (laughs) cars, kind of heading back down. I was on the phone to um, the crew at Wellington Zoo explaining the situation, and they just went to action stations, and we managed to get a whole lot of ice from um, a company that's uh, I guess they're the fishing companies that kind of shaved ice and we got a refrigerated door installed onto one of our enclosures and Mm -hmm. we got an industrial air conditioning unit so that we could actually freeze the room so we managed to get the temperature to like maybe about one to two degrees in that room.
0: Yeah so we had to sort of build a mini Antarctica room at the zoo.
5: Yeah yeah we did. (laughs)
0: <laughs> we actually it took it took quite some time to, to sort of nurse him back to health in a couple of months i think
5: yeah um we got the sand out um and then he was very underweight uh, by the time he'd obviously done his long journey from antarctica and spent time on the beach eating sand he had dropped to about 21 kilograms and for his age group he should have been closer to the 30 kilograms so mm-hmm. we had to sort of pack on that weight for him um and then i guess once he was actually healed, we, we then faced the issue of how do we get him back home. So he was his stay in hospital was delayed a little bit just around the logistics of organising that because just releasing him off the coast of New Zealand while that might have been okay, um, we wanted to give him a chance to actually find his way back home mm. to the um to the Antarctic. So taking him as far south as possible was a better option for us. So we explored that mm. as much as we could.
0: Do we know what's happened to Happy Feet?
5: Uh, we don't actually know because the transmitter that was put on him uh, fell off after about five days. Mm. But I, what I do know is when he was on the boat, he hated that transmitter. Mm. So I always maintain that he spent a lot of time getting rid of that transmitter. He probably knew that the salt water was going to be his friend. And he didn't want us following him anymore. Mm-hmm. And so that's the story I stick with. Anyway. Exactly. Yeah. He had as good a chance as any. Um, you know, the wild is a pretty, pretty tough place.
0: I like that yeah. version of the story. A happy feat. He's still alive and well and devastating salmon stocks around the world.
5: Yeah.
3: A large scale mission is underway to relocate the baby orca, Toa, who was separated from his family over the weekend.
0: Hi, oh, Kirsty Frame. Welcome back to the detail. Thanks for having me. Was, is this the first story that you covered as a as a journalist with Radio New Zealand?
6: Yes, my the first day um, that I started here was. The, the, basically the day after he washed up he washed up on like Sunday evening mm-hmm. and so I started work on Monday and uh yeah w- was was sent out to to Plymouth and Beach and followed um this from start to end I think it was almost it, w- it was just over two weeks.
0: Remind us Kirsty who Tor was and and how we came to know him.
6: Yeah, so Tor was a baby orca that got itself stranded from his pod uh, near Plymouth and Beach, which is just, you know, 40 minutes north of Wellington, and he captivated the community, the national community, and um, you know, was taken care for um while people tried to find his pod or, or, or try to sort of take care of him in the time being and um yeah as as we know this story doesn't have a happy ending. He mm. he passed of natural causes.
0: And yet he remains in our hearts. Yes. What did we end up doing with Tor?
6: He went to sort of like three different locations in the Um, area near the Plymouth and Boat Club so he started out in the shallows Uh and um, he didn't have an enclosure at that point they were just sort of people were sort of creating a little barrier um, in the water around him and then they moved him into basically the 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 boat ramp and they cut they fenced off an area at the end so he had like a big natural ocean pool to swim in and had people with him in there at all hours of the day and night and then when the powers that be, you know, brought the storms into um, the Wellington area, he had to be relocated into like a, a, the biggest uh, inflatable pool that we could find, mm. and so he was there until uh, he passed away.
0: You love orcas, and your love for orcas predates your covering the story, Kirsty.
6: Absolutely,
0: I'm trying to think of it from your point of view. You know that you're you're this new cub reporter you love orcas, here is this ultimately tragic but, you know, and and very sort of emotionally up and down story. I mean, was it difficult during this period, in all seriousness, was it difficult to kind of maintain your journalistic detachment while covering this this story?
6: A little bit, yeah. I think, like, especially because I was so new to journalism as well, I I wasn't quite... It took me a little bit, admittedly, to think about. Okay, this is costing a lot of money, and is this ethical? If we're like trying to, like, how long can we kind of hold this thing here? Mm. Um, and I definitely, you know, I definitely woke up to that as it as it got on, and everyone was sort of, you know, just trying to find a solution but the solution wasn't quite working and you know you naturally have that kind of you know the Department of Conservation has a hands-off approach to things like this whereas the Orca Research Trust has a very hands-on and um, sort of hopeful approach to things. Mm. So yeah I definitely got a feel you know after that first week particularly and as the weather started to deteriorate and all those kinds of things came to play i definitely got to see oh yeah this is a this is a complex situation for lots of people that are involved in this
0: he did end up dying was it yes. a sad day for you
6: Yes, I was. It was on the. It was on the Saturday night. So mm. I wasn't working, and I remember getting. I was hanging out with some friends, and I got the little push notification on my RNZ app, and they. They. I thought it was quite brilliant that they. They made the photo of Toa for that um, web piece, black and white, mm. and I actually I cried. I really did. Mm. I was just so. I don't know. I like. it wasn't that. It was surprising. I think that it was just like. Wow. This is all of the people that were together for this moment and really holding out for this kind of miracle story. I mean, the miracle story that everyone wanted was they found the pod... They wished him out uh, on the boat and, and got him to the pod and reconnected him with his mother, and then we, you know, let him live the rest of his life as he should in, in the wilderness. Um, yeah, so it was definitely a bit of a release of emotions when that came up, and, um, yeah, it was it was still a very, you know, I it was just going to be quite dear to my heart for yeah. a while. <whistles>
0: Jamanthi Sinhagale-Fonseca is a communications specialist who was working for the then Mayor Justin Lester when Mittens' fame began to snowball. Both you and Mittens have recently relocated to Auckland from Wellington, and it it is my considered opinion that this gives you the necessary detachment to offer a a clear-eyed perspective (laughs) on the the issue of this statue. So, I mean, what do you think? Mittens, cast in bronze, what do you think of the idea?
4: Well, first, I'd like to say I moved first and then he followed me. That's true. So, so there's that. I think it's weird, personally. I think it's, you know, I think these things come and go and the cat, you know, doesn't live in your city anymore. He wasn't from Wellington. I think that when it goes up, what it will be is sort of a, a monument to Wellington's brain drain, you know, well Mittens was this kind of interesting that was around for you know five minutes and well celebrated and then he had to leave. And I think it'll be sort of a monument of what was and what left. And I think if I were willing to I'd be choosing something a bit more present to build a monument to.
0: That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom 4RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Bonnie Harrison and Sarah Robson. And thanks to And Sinhaliger Fonseca, Kirsty Frame, Alison Balance, Lisa Argula, Anika Smith, Annette Hilton, and Graham Bloxham. And mittens. Matewa.